Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. My name is Lakshani Mendes, and I'm an NIHR Research Project Coordinator based at University College London. Today, we're recording the second podcast of a two-part special on language and communication in dementias. So I'm very pleased to welcome Anna Walkmer, Rosemary Bali, and Vita Zimmerer to today's NIHR Dementia Research Podcast. Before we get on to uh, this topic, let's get to know our panelists a little bit better. Anna, Rosemary, and Vita are all working on language and cognition based at the Department of Psychology and Language Sciences here at UCL. Um, so Rosemary Varley is a professor of acquired language disorders. Rosemary, you say we can find you wheeling around barrel loads of manure during your spare time. Do you have lots of spare time? Not a lot. <laughs> it's a good way to, to rest and relax your mind, to do something different, shoveling manure. Fair enough. Could <laughs> and, be a metaphor for academic life as well. But there we are. <laughs> and what inspired you to get into this area of research? Um, I'm, I'm very interested in language and brain, language and mind. Um, I worked as a speech and language therapist within the NHS for a number of years. And I'm endlessly fascinated by how language goes wrong, how it breaks. Um, I think the condition of aphasia, which is a language impairment, can give you insights into the the basic mechanisms of speech and language and that in itself is fascinating and working with people and their families who have language disorder you feel you're doing a really useful job. Well welcome to today's podcast we'll get into a little bit more about what you do soon. Next we have Vita Zimmer a postdoctoral research associate. Vita do you want to share why you have a lost language maybe yourself with some of our listeners? Um, well, I should perhaps first say that losing a language uh, in my case is very different from losing a language in the clinical sense. Mm. But um, when I, when I start, try to think about how it is to have a communication impairment, I do think about my the 10% of my native language Portuguese that are maybe left. Because when I'm in Brazil, it's easy to kind of feel lost in a very familiar environment. Um, so, so yeah, uh, I am a victim of what's called language attrition. Uh, mm. I came to Germany when I was quite young and lost most of my, uh, of my Portuguese. So, um, um, it's a typical question to ask linguists how many languages they speak. And, uh, it's one less that I could name. Right. And what made you work in this sort of area of research? Well, I come from the field of linguistics, so mm -hmm. I was always interested in how we produce language, how we understand language, and then slowly migrated to the clinical sciences. And one day I was working on this analysis that um, I think we're going to talk about later, and I thought, oh, this is so fine, it would be interesting to apply this to dementia, mm -hmm. where you know subtle differences matter. Um, and this is how we started working on dementia, or no, I yeah. started working on dementia. Sounds great. And, mm. and last but not least, we have Anna Walkman, who's a regular panelist and blogger for Dementia Researcher. Welcome back, Anna. Thank you. Um, so can you tell our listeners who maybe haven't met you yet uh, a little bit more about yourself and why you chose to work uh, in dementia? 
Yes. Um, so I'm also a speech and language therapist by background and I worked with um, people with dementia clinically across England and Australia uh, for many years and I was working with people with dementia and their families trying to support them in their communication to maintain their communication, their interactions, their quality of life and as I was working I'd look to the research evidence to check that everything as a good clinician trying to be an evidence-based clinician too and um, really looked at that evidence and there really wasn't much around the kind of things we could deliver and so I decided that perhaps it would be useful for me to try and create some of that evidence um, not only to support clinicians but also to support speech and language therapy as a profession to really emphasise the breadth of our service to build our services and hopefully improve the quality of life uh, for people with dementia and their families, ultimately. So that's what drew me back to academia and um, and thus to UCL. Sounds inspiring. <laughs> Thanks for sharing, Anna. Great. So, um, listeners, if you're a regular Dementia Researcher podcast uh, listener, then you might have already heard our podcast. Uh, and Anna, you were on that one as well that we talked about yeah. communication training for people with language-led uh, dementia or primary progressive aphasia. And like I mentioned earlier, there's the first part of this two-part special uh, on communication and language and dementias, um, which was recorded with researchers at the University of Sydney, actually. Um, so go listen to that. But let's get, you know, stuck into the work that you do. So, Rosemary, maybe you can give us a basic introduction to what you mean when you sort of use that term language as well in the context of you know the work and the research yeah. that you're yeah. conducting well I think it's first of all worth noting that language is important for humans um, it's how you express your feelings your emotions it's central to being employable um, it's necessary for education if you can imagine a classroom with no language. So having a language impairment really impacts on your quality of life, your quality of your relationships with other people and your ability to function in society. Um, so when we talk about language, we're talking about the ability to understand language as well as produce language. And it's not just about spoken language, it's about written language as well. Mm. So, so that, that's the nature of what we're dealing with. And typically linguists will approach language in terms of a set of levels. They'll talk about um, the sound structure of a language, sometimes called the phonology, um, the vocabulary, which is about words and their meaning, um, the grammatical structure, how words are combined together to form sentences. And in, in the introduction to, to this podcast, we talked about language and communication. So there's a bigger thing as well in that um, language is structured beyond single sentences. So if I say something like, um, I broke my leg because it was green, that's kind of a weird sentence because mm -hmm. those two ideas don't fit together very well. But also... Um, language is integrated with all sorts of nonverbal communication, like yeah. eye contact mm -hmm. um, and, you know, politeness. So if you say to me, pass me some water, and I, you know, if you, if you say to me, can you pass me some water, and I go, yeah, that's impolite because you're actually asking me um, to pass you the water. Mm. So there's lots of ways in which language it has its, its structured, but it's also integrated with all other sorts of behaviour. Um, in terms of the brain, 
the, those various linguistic levels, vocabulary, uh, the sound structure, grammar, have a little bit of dedicated machinery, but actually they're all very closely connected together. Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting for dementia because, for example, the grammar and the sound structure are more at um, the frontal lobe end of the brain, whereas uh, words and their meaning involve much more the temporal lobe. And so then you have all this wiring in, so things like the politeness thing, like, um, can you pass me the, wa- the water? Yeah. Um, is about my social behaviour and my ability to to be polite, to be cooperative with people. And because of that, language is interesting because it kind of, it's got a finger in lots of neural pies and if something's going wrong somewhere in the brain, you're going to see signs of it. You're going to see language change. And that's the case, certainly, in the dementias. So I don't want to skip ahead, but I've already got some yeah. follow-up questions yeah, based sure. on that. Um, but I guess we'll first go to, well, so when you're talking about then language and communication like that, and then within, you know, a research kind of field, how do you measure language and communication I mean, it's a complex question because there are two different mm. questions embedded within that question. And one is, what what should we look at? And as uh, Rosemary said, there are many different lang- uh, levels from sounds, words, sentences, appropriateness. Um, and um, as we're looking at different types of dementia, different ways dementia can change your brain, uh, we can imagine that any of these levels or a combination of these levels uh, change. And... Um, and also, uh, each of these levels itself is very complex. There are many different aspects of grammar to look at, many different aspects of word processing, etc., etc. So the one question is, what, are, what should we even look at? And uh, there's a bit of a variable hunt at the moment where different labs are trying to figure out which variables to look at to profile different types of dementia, pick up change early, uh, track change over time. Um, and what we are looking at is uh, one thing that we bring into the mix that is, I think, rather new, at least in this field, is the ability to produce rare language. So to say something that's not very common, to produce a new word combination or a rare word combination. Because it turns out that this is harder than saying something that you hear all the time. Okay, So what we hear all the time is sometimes called formulaic language. Uh, the word sequences are very fixed. They have a very specific meaning, for example, in com- conversation. Um, you know, there are only so many ways I can say you're welcome, and you're welcome is the, the most common way. That's a formula. Um, and it turns out that as um, my language system becomes affected by dementia, the combination, the, 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 my ability to to form new sentences and phrases decreases. So I'm more restricted to what's common. And it should perhaps not be a huge surprise, I think, because as we see in dementia generally, that it becomes a challenge to be in a new situation, to handle new information. Turns out in language it's just the same. It becomes difficult to do something new with your, with your language system. And then the other part of the question is, uh, how should we look at it? Um, and in, in a clinically meaningful sense. So we can't have uh, humans sit there and transcribe everything and hand analyze every sample. It takes way too much time. Um, thankfully, 
um, with the advance of um, machine learning, computer analysis, etc., we're getting closer and closer to the point where you know you do indeed just speak into a microphone mm -hmm. and get maybe meaningful signal out. That could mean that analyzing language could be very, very cheap, right? Because if mm -hmm. all you need is a bit of software and a computer and a microphone, um, that is much cheaper than putting someone in, um, in, inside an, um, an MRI scanner, for example. No, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> great. Um, so kind of following on a little bit from what Rosemary was then talking about as well, like with language, um, you know, there are so many different parts of the brain um, that, you know, process different things. Mm. So like with the words and the meaning, it's, you know, in the temporal lobe area. Um, so with um, a, de a degenerative disease like dementia, mm. Will there be aspects of language and communication that you lose at different times then, depending on how far along yeah. you I, are? I mean, we, we titled this podcast Language and Communication in the Dementias, yeah. plural. So I'm following on from what Vitor is saying about this automatic measurement of language, that different dementias may have different signatures. So that if you have... Um, a dementia that particularly the, the, the degeneration starts in prefrontal cortex, we might see an alteration in this sort of politeness phenomena first. If you have a dementia that's more of a temporal lobe uh, condition, for example, Alzheimer's disease, we're likely to see maybe changes in vocabulary um, as a first symptom. Uh, Anna in particular works with the primary progressive aphasias, mm -hmm. frontotemporal dementias, and there's a bunch of those which the degeneration begins in, in uh, part of the frontal lobe that's very important for sound structure and, and grammar. And so you tend to see these grammatical alterations very early mm -hmm. on. So they all have different signatures mm -hmm. depending on where the degeneration starts. That's right. So, for example, in if we were to go into more detail around the three um, primary progressive aphasias, there's actually three internationally accepted uh, variants or subtypes. Um, uh, there may be more, but that's up for debate. But at the minute, the, there's three. And there's one where, which is termed the semantic variant, where people present initially often with difficulties in thinking of words or understanding words because of a degradation of knowledge of word meanings and these are people who are often very very fluent in their mm -hmm. output and very empty so they might use fillers like thing and she and he and yeah. um, whereas people with something called the logopenic variant of PPA have more difficulties in retrieving the word form so they will present with difficulties often in constructing that word form, retrieving that word form. So they might make uh, phonological errors, sound errors. There might be pauses as they're trying to get that word. But their comprehension is much more intact. Um, they often have real difficulties with uh, the, that idea of repeating back a digit span so that I often as a speech therapist call it phonological buffer but it's also often memory is a hard thing it's a very complex yeah. thing but often might be termed working memory as well but I won't get into a memory debate but it's that 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 skill we use to remember a phone number so um, people with logopenic variant PPA will find it very difficult to remember a string of numbers or a longer sentence and to really understand that because of they're not able to retain the entire word forms over a long period and then there's the logopenic uh, sorry the non-fluent agrammatic variant that's the third variant um, and they these are people who present with um, disfluent 
speech. So they are apraxic, we call that. So they mm-hmm. present with, uh, they really can't make their muscles do what, uh, or make right. the mouth produce the word form. So they really grope, it becomes effortful, really, it can often be very frustrating and stressful. And um, these are often people who are so quite agrammatic. So over time, you know, initially, it may not be really apparent. So it might just be a subtle simplicity in their grammatical mm-hmm. forms. And over time, they may even start developing more list-like telegraphic, just single words. Mm-hmm. And they may even become mute as well and all three variants progress and often people describe it as um they they merge that you kind of quite all but really there's not much research been done around the staging of these three variants and how people progress uh, entirely but certainly you people become more and more severely impaired in both language and other cognitive features as well cognitive skills start becoming more difficult that gives you an overview really yeah. 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 I mean, there's a real challenge in picking up early change. Um, yeah. And I mentioned uh, there's an increasing simplicity in the language. Because it doesn't immediately manifest as language errors or anything like that, the language sounds fine. It's just uh, perhaps a bit simpler. But mm. no, we're used to hearing simple language as well. We're used to hearing common language as well. So it's really difficult to kind of intuitively detect early change and, you know, this is where, you know, th- these new tools, analyses can, can come in. Mm. But, um, yeah. and, and in addition to sort of identifying early change, that when somebody does come to clinic mm. and, and they have a diagnosis, they, you have, often they come back with a, a, a printout from the internet saying, so which type have I got? Yeah, right. Um, because when you have a bad diagnosis, everybody needs information. And actually having, having information gives you control of your, your, yeah. your illness. And... Um, I used to work in a clinic where we often did early diagnosis and often you would say, not entirely sure yet. We have to see how Mm. it evolves and what appears over the next six months Mm. to a year. And that's unsatisfactory. So Mm. being able to identify these different signatures early is important for for the individual with the dementia and their families. But also it's going to be, as we learn more about the underlying neurobiology of these different dementias, it could have very important treatment implications. For example, there might be different protein abnormalities involved. Mm -hmm. And so come the day when we have better therapies, um, you know, it will be critical to very early on to say you have this type of or that type and the recommended care pathway drug regime whatever it might be is going to be this Mm. and even now sometimes it's really useful to try and subtype particularly having worked in the area of primary progressive aphasia um for example logopenic variant is often more often caused by an Alzheimer's pathology and mm-hmm. there may be trials, research trials that that individual is then able to um, participate in because we really hone down the variant. Um, equally, uh, Rosemary touched on this idea of the family and the person themselves being able to prepare. Um, so it's not just about language and communication, but also pairing, preparing for one's future and uh, understanding what's going to happen to oneself, you know, future healthcare decisions, future yeah. lifestyle decisions. So when you touch on family and, you know, partners and that kind of thing, because I've heard that, you know, often partners especially, you can pick up sort of tiny changes because you've known someone for such a long time. Um, Have you seen anyone sort of who's who's come in and been like, well, you know, there are kind of these 
they picked up on subtle changes and then they're kind of just looking for, I guess, yeah, answers around it. Mm. That can happen. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you get, certainly the clinic I worked in, you get the worried mm. well. You mm. Um, mm. So language does change as you get older. Right. And the thing that you notice that changes is word finding, particularly mm. people's names. Mm. Um and discriminating that normal pattern of aging for something that's pathological is really important. Yeah. Can put someone's mind at rest mm. and say, no, this is just entirely normal. Um, families notice also, um, particularly with the unusual dementias like primary progressive aphasia, these onset earlier in life. So they might onset mm. in the 50s, so mm. people are at work. Mm -hmm. And sometimes co-workers mm. start noticing that um, uh, somebody's charged with taking a telephone message and yeah. it gets garbled or they're to take the minutes of a meeting and somehow yeah. they've lost the thread of the meeting. So people around can notice these changes mm -hmm. and they often are the reason people come to clinic. Right. Yeah. I've worked with lots of people, in fact, who maybe have changed jobs or had some conflict in their job or perhaps somebody's said, or a family member or colleague has said, they're not listening to me as mm. much anymore. So they may not make, a, family and friends or the employers may not make a specific observation on language, but it may be something but more broad about relationships yeah. as well and interaction mm. and how good, well mm. someone's mm. participating in mm. what they were formerly really participating in quite well and, and this is quite important because often people go people realize there's something wrong and they mm. think they're they're depressed or mm. they're anxious and there's this, they, they spend a lot of time trekking around mm. clinics mm. they get referred to the psychiatrist for anxiety um bouncing around bouncing around yeah. um and in a way a really important critical window for diagnosis is is being lost because as anna said that you know making your an advanced directive lifestyle decisions yeah. all these things while you have full capacity are really yeah. really important so early diagnosis That's is critical right. i have a question yeah for for you, Rosemary and Anna, because you're the clinicians and I come more from outside, from the linguistics angle. Because the, the one um, realization that I think I got over the, over the past years that, is that by the time someone goes into a memory clinic or, you know, because a family member notices that there's something strange or the person, him or herself, notices that, you know, um, that there are any changes it is very often much too late. You want the diagnosis to be much sooner. So it, it's, it, it, it's, it appears to me, listening to examples or seeing some examples, that, um, that it's hard to really rely on just on family members picking it up because by the time yeah. they have the diagnosis, it's, it seems to be much too late. When you have a neurologist saying, yeah. oh, you know, it's a good trick to ask the person how old they are because if they struggle telling you how old they are they probably have dementia by that time it's, you, know, you want and, to identify dementia much much sooner than and if that. we're talking about therapeutics mm. yeah. you know you want to get in there as early as possible to stop this abnormal protein deposit yeah. so the earlier we can identify someone's deviating from some a normal mm. trajectory um that's really critical. Mm -hmm. So it's the tools that Vito was talking about, these automated computerized tools, and they're heavily quantitative and therefore very sensitive, mm -hmm. that they may be able to detect that altered trajectory at risk status, mild cognitive impairment really quite early. 
And yet, Vitor, to answer your question also <laughs> in a more lateral sense, in a clinical sense, you know, I've met people who just don't want to know. You know, we talk, we're talking about communication and language and talking about organic things, but there's also personality, culture. In, yeah. Lots of people I've met will... Um, don't wish to know often because it's stigmatized either in their own family in their age group in their culture in their religion and um and actually that's fine often they can cope for a very long time without having to acknowledge a change mm. and dementia is one of the most feared um conditions you know there's it's all over the paper isn't it mm. um you know there's headlines it's more feared than cancer amongst mm. people in their 50s and 60s mm. and i think at the moment there are no viable, you know, therapeutic options that are well known of in the public domain. And that's, I think, another reason why it's really important to work in this area, because there, it's not only about it's I mean, trials of medications of preventative medicine are really important, but also trials of care mm. and mm. trials of um, behavior interventions or communication, speech and language interventions are also mm. equally useful. If we can um, demonstrate that some of these really work, it can offer um, hope. And I've been to a number of support groups where they've said that often they go to their medical professional or they've been diagnosed by their medical professional and that's it they just get sent home at diagnosis with nothing else whereas if we were able to um, improve the care pathway I mean we're getting into well that is a path that is a pathway rather than a a, a diagnosis and cheery bye we want an alternative pathway Um, but I think as speech and language therapists working in a clinic that is part of the care that you are then providing um to you know these patients but then also because i remember touching uh, on this in the our previous podcast when you talked about um you know with the approaches that you're trying it's it's broader than just working with a per, per, person with dementia and that's something we've chatted about today as well it's sort of supporting you know that broad aspect of communication also talking about how that might change with family members and um, you know, partners and, and the carers then. Yeah. Um, but are there some approaches that work better than others? And I guess this is why you're all in research, I was, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I've, I think the first general point to make is that communication is dyadic. It takes mm-hmm. two. And so if you're in a situation where one member of that communication dyad has got impaired cognition because mm-hmm. some of yeah. change is going on in their brain, you maybe have another one who has entirely intact cognition and is capable of new learning and so that's that whole basis for actually intervening with carers rather Mm. than just maybe a traditional model of intervening on with the the patient Mm. um the evidence base i think at the moment is still pretty sparse and i will agree so that's what the research is about in terms of um how you could maximize the skill of the person with the diagnosis so that they can maintain there's been some research on how you can maintain vocabulary for Mm. longer but possibly the more promising because of this notion of one person in the dyad has intact cognition um, some of the promising interventions would be about uh, altering the behavior of the carers Mm. and we're not just talking about family members here we might be talking about professional carers so people in care homes about how we can modify their behavior 
so that when they're interacting with somebody with dementia, they're using optimal behaviours that mean that the person, you know, eye contact, touch, mm-hmm. um, uh, what type of language is more comprehensible, you know, rather than something terribly complicated, mm-hmm. you know, backing up reference to something with a point, um, these type of behaviours. So at the moment there's been... Not much in the way of big trials. Anna's doing some work she'll probably tell us about in a minute. But we also need to get clever about how we measure the outcomes. So, you know, clever outcomes are looking looking at things like staff satisfaction, if you're talking Mm. about care home Mm -hmm. environments. Um, If staff are trained, do they stay in their jobs longer? Yeah. You know, so clever outcome measures rather than maybe some of the more obvious ones. Or even things around, you know... I often, so I often get asked, what's the point in referring someone with dementia where they're quite far along in their journey and, you know, it's, you know, they're often nonverbal, they're bed bound and it's all about caring and grooming. And actually at those times, I often think in terms, coming back to getting clever with outcomes, it can be about, was the grooming task easier because you had an easier interaction? The where individual you, was compliant rather than it. resistant. Exactly. You know, you didn't have shouting, crying, screaming, Pushing, slapping, slapping. Or, or, or whatever. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Did you have to use less medications? I mean, mm. that's a... Um, I shouldn't really talk about sedatives, but you know, it, it, how did you manage? Was the communication were the communication skills enough to manage mm. that situation? You know, that kind of more lateral thinking, mm. I think, and it's really important to acknowledge that actually. Uh, we as speech and language therapists these speech and language interventions um, can support a person not only at the kind of at the beginning of their journey in the middle of the Mm. journey but also right at the end stage Mm. um, which is perhaps where there's least evidence and I think to demonstrate that these evidence these interventions work is really difficult because they're really complex interventions it's not just like one tablet that you're giving someone you know particularly when you're working with the dyad you're working with the person with the dementia and you're working with their partner you're having you know multiple sessions you're uh, you are doing multiple activities you might be giving them tasks to do outside of the therapy session you may be a very nice therapist what's really difficult is to really show it's the actual um intervention that made the difference and not um something else so often with things like speech and language therapy it's really difficult to be do rigorous controlled randomized controlled trial work which is where often uh it's considered there's a gold standard and which is where consequently guidelines and care pathways coming back to care pathways come from and so it can be really really hard to do that kind of work with um these complex um therapies but I uh, going back again to what um, Rosemary was saying we're getting clever also about knowing what strategies are working mm-hmm. it also you know going full circle back to the work that Vitor's doing mm-hmm. around formulaic language yeah. you know th- there's potential for uh, to use some of this work to guide interventions and the types of strategies we use and um, really perhaps we, you know, I'm hypothesising mm. long term, but, you know, perhaps if we have a better idea of what formulas an individual is using or understands, we could advise the people around them to use those specific formulas. So, so lots of charities have communication tips mm-hmm. and the actual evidence base as to whether they make uh, language more comprehensible um, 
is actually very sparse and Vito, I think, wants to talk on this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the anecdote, I yeah. think, is when, Rosie, you suggested looking at something called topic fronting and that's yeah. a strategy where mm-hmm. you would announce the topic first right. before saying something about it. So, so instead for example, of saying, instead of, instead, instead of saying what would you like for breakfast, you yeah. say... For breakfast, what, right. like? what would you like? Yeah. And uh, so when I heard about it, I thought, okay, I never heard about this. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I come from linguistics. No, mm-hmm. I, I don't talk like this. I haven't heard of such a strategy. <laughs> so let's look into the literature, what the literature says. Turns out there's nothing <laughs> in the but research it, but literature. It's recommended. But, um, yeah. Yeah. It's there in the communication yeah. tips, but and there's no evidence. And there is reason, Vito yeah. may go on to no, say. I think it taps into a really big question. And the big question is what is easy and what is difficult mm-hmm. language? Right. And uh, there's so many different dimensions to that. Uh, so one way to um, to produce simpler language that you think may be easy is just to strip away stuff from your language, to remove all the grammar, have just a bunch of words, really just like, like the core message. But what you may end up with is something that's really atypical and novel and, and, and weird. Right? Yeah. And that may be actually something that makes it harder because right. uh, yeah. someone with dementia may not be able to cope with a novel, weird situation. Yeah. So the question is, where is the best trade-off between... What does simplification even mean? Does it mean reduction of structure or does it mean using just more common language? Mm-hmm. Or is it a combination of both? Mm-hmm. And to be honest, we, you know, we have some evidence that suggests that you know, using common language may be an important factor, but we're not there yet where we know what the, what the right mix is. What, yeah. Yeah. Mm. This is why the research that all of you are doing is so, so important. Um, I, and I just wanted to, so this is kind of a little bit left field, but um, just because, you know, personal kind of interest, uh, I guess, as well, because I'm bilingual. Does that have an effect then? Because, you know, often, you know, you get people who learn English maybe as a second language, you know, much yeah. later on. Um, does that sort of have an effect of, you know, when, how, you know, developing dementias then affect kind of your language ability in the different languages you speak maybe? Are you talking about like as a neuroprotective mechanism? No, so it's about somebody who is bilingual bilingual, and what patterns patterns of loss do you get? So there was a really interesting talk, sorry Rosemary, in in Sydney on, they had a whole plenary session at the International Conference on Frontotemporal Dementia on um, language-led dementia in people who of bilingual um, origin. And as I'm also a bilingual person, I speak mm-hmm. German. Um, and one of the things they said that really resonated with me as a, as a bilingual person and as a therapist was that, and it feeds into what Vito's saying, is perhaps it's about the easiest language. So they were talking about language switching mm-hmm. and they were saying that, that language switching is a really common phenomenon and people just switch through languages back and forth and... Um, they were saying often with dementia, people that happens too, and we have these theories that certain languages deteriorate in different ways, there's patterns, but they were essentially saying maybe that the ease of accessing word forms is something we haven't considered. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, that really resonates, you know, I mm-hmm. often switch through to the yeah. words in both languages, which I is just. So? Yeah, genau, richtig. Einfach, einfach, ne? We're showing off now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, sorry, Vito, go on. No, you, you're going you to add complete, something. No, no, no. I, was going, I was just going to add a joke. You're going to, <laughs> perhaps you want to complete your, your thought. <laughs> no, it's great. So, I mean, the whole, it's the area of 
bilingualism and language disorder is really complicated because it's very hard to get a group of people, sort of 50 people who have identical pre-injury, pre-dementia language profiles. So bilingual speakers may vary in which language they use most. So a typical pattern is the language that's used most is the one that's most resistant to loss. Mm. Um, that can be the first language if it's the home language mm-hmm. and the one that's spoken with more frequency. But if somebody has migrated Equally, from yeah. somewhere mm. and mm. then learned a new language mm. and they've used that for 40, 50 years, um, then the second language would be more resistant to loss. Mm. So this notion of, of going back to Vitor's starting point about common phrases, that the 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 system is kind of weighted to retain this higher frequency stuff for longer, and that's true of mm. individual words, but also word combinations. Mm. I mean, unfortunately, there's a practice in uh, in the linguistic work where you want to have um, your sample as monolingual as possible because yeah. it's hard enough yeah. to study one language. So yeah, let's just not. exclude yeah. everyone who doesn't speak. So we're doing a study with en- English material. So let's just exclude everyone who, whose first okay. language is not yeah. English. Right? And um, that just yeah stands in the way of, of, of research on the effects of bilingualism. Obviously, there are studies specifically targeting bilingualism, but there is also a bit of selection bias mm. in studies where... Um, you know, for for reasons which are understandable, but unfortunately not you know not, not meaningful for you know real life purposes, mm-hmm. especially in a place here like London, where you want to select a sample that is mm-hmm. as monolingual yeah. as possible. Yeah. And the majority of the world's population is yeah, exactly. bilingual, trilingual, multilingual. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, sorry, go yeah. on. Unfortunately, I have met um, other health care professionals who said I didn't refer the bilingual or non-English speaking person because I didn't think you could help them as a speech and language therapist Um, so you know comes back to then that broader sense of communication then as well right it's not about just the language well it's been a very fascinating talk and session but unfortunately I think it's time to start wrapping up I think before we End the session, though. Do you have, um, we'll quickly go through to each of our panellists. Do you have any advice you'd like to share with early career researchers who are maybe thinking about, you know, following uh, a similar path into this area of research? Vito? I mean, um, I think one shouldn't be discouraged by the fact that one does not have a clinical background. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it is possible to get into dementia research from a different field. You have to think that dementia affects so many aspects of life that there are a lot of different research subjects that are not primarily about dementia or neurological uh, pathologies that can contribute, right? So, um, so if you're listening to this podcast because you're your partner is a speech and language therapist <laughs> or a neurologist. Uh, think about you know yourself and you know, what am I doing that may actually be relevant for for some aspect, for some one part of life of someone with with dementia. And in my case, it was you know the, the work mm-hmm. on language, but it can yeah. be anything else. Anna, any? I probably sound you? like a broken record, <laughs> but I always um, say that. Um, 
Clinicians, speech and language therapists, allied health, healthcare professionals make really good researchers, in my opinion. I think that um, I always used to think that academics and researchers were incredibly brainy, super clever, and that I could never possibly rise to those amazing levels. But actually, uh, having now stepped into a more uh, research world, more of a research world, I've realised that some of my skills as a a communicator, as a networker, as a very determined, motivated person with clinical experience are actually just as valuable. You know, you can learn to write and use statistics programs yeah. or ask yeah. other people for help. <laughs> um, but, you know, some of those other things, particularly communication skills, um, are really, really valuable skills. Yeah, for me, I would say, well, first of all, Dementia always used to be seen as a very bleak area to work, mm. and it clearly is mm. so important with um, increasing uh, our, our aging profile. Yeah. You know, it's going to be critical. And so if you want to work in a field which is going to be vibrant, where there's going to be a, you know, let's be uh, crude, you know, there's going to be grants and opportunities to do exciting research, dementia might be it for you. I think it's... A fascinating field to work in that you combining something like language with other cognitive systems with the neurobiology of dementia. So if you like this, um, you know, multiple components to a problem, I think you could find it intellectually very intriguing. Thanks. Well, Rosemary, Vito and Anna, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedules to join me today. It's definitely been a pleasure. I've learned heaps about um, language and communication and how it changes in dementias. Um, I hope, our, I'm sure our listeners um, have learnt heaps as well. Um, listeners, make sure you listen to our other podcasts on um, communication training for people with language-led dementia and the first part of this two-part special um, on communication and language in dementias as well. You can also share your views on this topic by posting your comments in the Dementia Researcher Forum uh, and engaging with us on Twitter using the hashtag ECR Dementia. Um, you can also follow and engage with today's panellists, I believe, uh, or three of you on Twitter. Maybe, I know Anna is. I'm not. Yeah. Okay. I am. Yeah, yeah, we are. The yeah. professor's too old to do that. <laughs> um, and Anna and Rita, what, what are your Twitter handles? So mine is at Volkma, V-O-L-K-M for mother, E-R, underscore Anna, with two N's. Okay. Mine is at vit underscore zim, V-I-T underscore Z-I-M. Awesome. Thanks all. Um, and finally, don't forget to subscribe to the Dementia Researcher podcast. Leave us a review on uh, SoundCloud and iTunes, preferably five stars, of course, but that's completely <laughs> up to you. Uh, and tell all your friends and colleagues about us. Thank you. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.